Let's uh, pray for Nathan as he brings uh, the word to us. Thank you, Father, for Nathan, your servant. We thank you for uh, this passage that we look at today, Lord God, that you might open it up to us through your Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts, Lord God, that we might be ready to listen to what Jesus has to uh, say to us today. Thank you for Nathan, and we just pray now for him as he brings your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Great to see you all this morning, and uh, welcome if you're a visitor today. I have the uh, privilege today of just sharing with you from God's Word. Uh, Today on the Christian calendar is a significant day. It's known as Palm Sunday. It's uh, reflected in many churches, uh, you know, four days before Passover, four days before Good Friday. And it's a significant part of the gospel message that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And it's my privilege this morning just to... to, uh, bring you uh, some of the truth that we can find in in these passages. Now, I don't know about you, but um, during life, uh, you have significant events that take place. Each one of you could probably remember something incredibly significant uh, that has occurred through the years. One particular year in in our lives, and that's my family, Julie, myself, and the kids, was... uh, the year 1997. Now, 1997 for us was a, a significant year. For some of you, you probably weren't even born. For most of you, you may have some memory of it. I asked Shabu today, I said, hey, Shabu, what were you doing in 1997? He said, oh, I was two years um, out of uh, school. I said, okay, well, Shabu's probably about the average age of what we have here, so we should be able to remember things about 1997. It's only 17 years ago. Now, for us as a... Uh, as a family, we moved uh, away from our hometown in Hawke's Bay, New Zealand, uh, the next holders of the World Cup. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we, we moved away from, from Hastings and moved to the big smoke, what we considered the, the big smoke, Auckland. Uh, our third child, our lovely Emma Rose, was born in 1997, so that was a significant event. Uh, Our son, Eli, he had open-heart surgery at 18 months old in 1997, so that was fairly significant as well. And um, Judy's dad passed into glory in 1997. So we had a a six-month period uh, from the birth of Emma to the the death of um, Julie's dad that was fairly tumultuous, not to say that we had moved from one part of the country to another and all that transition occurs. In world terms, other significant things had happened in 1997. Can any of you remember some other significant things in 97 that happened? Lady Diana, Mother Teresa, both died in 1997. And there was uh, another major phenomena in 1997. What might that have been? You might not pick this one. Towards the end of 1997. It started with a song. My heart will go on. It was a movie called Titanic. That was released in 1997. The highest grossing film of that time. Who here has wanted to stand on the bow of the front of a ship 
saying, I'm flying. Now, come on, you've all got to admit, you were probably gripped by that movie. Well, the box office tells us so because it's the first movie in the history of the world that grossed a, million, a billion dollars. And to date, it's grossed over $2 billion because, as you do with any good movie, you re-release it in 2012. But you know, the Titanic was a, a captivating movie on many accounts. One, because it was historical. There was a historical fiction being played out. Sure, they placed a love story over the top of it. Jack, Jack, don't leave me, Jack. And... Um, it had the whole drama of the boat sinking, which was a historical fact. And if you notice, as you watch that movie for hours and hours, <laughs> which your heart did go on and on and on, that um, the movie really concentrated on the last eight hours of the voyage. Really concentrated on the last aspect of the puncher in the side of the boat, the chambers filling with water, and the slow descent into the ocean's depths. And in many ways, um, the gospel accounts are like that. And this morning we're going to look at the gospel of Matthew. And as you look across the gospel of Matthew... The main themes, the main focus, I believe, in the writer's mind was the last week of Jesus' life. The last six or seven days of his life. But unlike Titanic, the movie, because in that historical movie, there was no predictions previously that that boat was going to go down. For in that uh, historical event, we learn things from the actual disaster. We learn things that there weren't enough lifeboats and the, uh, the propeller and rudder were too small for the size and speed of the boat and it couldn't turn in an agile way. And one of the most telling quotes, I think, in the movie, which I remember from it, is uh, the engineer, the man who had built the boat, was in dialogue with the owner of the line. And the owner of the line said, the Titanic is, it's a, it's a mighty boat, it should not sink. And the engineer turns and looks at him, I can't remember his name, he says, I can tell you, sir, that this boat is made of hundreds of tons of iron, and it will sink. And um, that's the historical element of it, but yeah, the Gospels are different especially as we look at the Gospel of Matthew because a lot of the things in Matthew have been predicted beforehand. Matthew, out of all the Gospels, has more Old Testament quotes and allusions in its pages than any of the other Gospels. You look at the Gospel of Matthew and it could be described as the, the story of Jesus, the son of David. That term, son of David, relating to Jesus is used nine times in the Gospel of Matthew. That's eight more times than in the other Gospel. 
At the heart of the Gospel of Matthew, you have God demonstrating that Jesus, his son, the son of David, is bringing fulfillment of his promises to his chosen people, the Jews. And though, or even in spite of their reaction, I'm talking about the Jewish nation as we read through this book, to offer God decides, and as part of his plan, he offers identical blessings and judgments to all humanity. The offer goes to the Jews as per the Old Testament quotes and also goes to all humanity as per the Old Testament promises. As you um, read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll become familiar with the fact that Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greater than the priests. He's greater than the kings. And he brings in or inaugurates a new covenant as he ushers in the kingdom of God. As I've mentioned, one of the greater things we see in the Gospel of Matthew as opposed to any of the other Gospels, Jesus fulfills the purposes of the Old Testament. And Jesus, as you come to see, as you read this wonderful story, comes to a position of complete authority to dictate how his followers must obey these scriptures in this new age that he is about to bring about. Over half of the Old Testament quotes in the book of Matthew are unique and are related to fulfillment. God in his plan had placed a picture of what would happen through the Old Testament. When Jesus steps into and is ushered into earth, we see this gospel particularly saying, hey, this is correct. God's word is sure. God's promises are secure. He is the Messiah. So I'd like you to open with me, and we're just going to do a, a brief, brief survey up until the week before Easter, up until Passover week. And see what God's word can teach us. So open your Bibles at Matthew 16. Or slide your tablets or whatever. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today, the ESV. And we're going to start our brief survey in chapter 16. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is in the, the most northern part of the nation of Israel. It's above the Sea of Galilee. It's up by Mount Hebron. If I had a picture, if, even if you turned the, your maps in the back of your Bible, Caesarea Philippi is the northernmost part. It's at the headwaters of the Jordan which come out of Mount Hebron. So that's the location He's in that district. 
And he asked his, he's asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's a fair question. They had been walking with him. They had been talking with him close on three years. And he comes to this point in conversation with them. And uh, by all accounts, historically, this is the place by the Temple of Pan, the place of uh, deity worship of foreign gods. And uh, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they answered him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, watch the reply, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Incredibly powerful statement because in the name Christ is the the root word Christos. And if you translate that from the Old Testament, you say Yahweh. You are God. That's who you are. You are the Messiah, the promised one. They do not understand that in its entirety. But that is the statement of fact. And Jesus turned to him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is above. Who had revealed this to Peter? God. It wasn't some human intuition. God, through his spirit, had grabbed hold of Peter and his fellow disciples and they had come to the conclusion after three years of wandering in the wilderness with this fellow, up and down the coastal regions of of Israel, in the inland parts of Israel, that you are the Christ, you are the promised son of God. Let me move down. And for the first time in a a three-year period, Jesus starts revealing things to him. On one hand, you've got the testimony, yes, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And on the other hand, Jesus starts explaining what that is. So verse uh, 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now this would have been a revolutionary statement to the disciples. They were under Roman uh, rule. They were servants of the empire. They had read through the Old Testament and many references in the Old Testament uh, considered that the coming Messiah would release them from uh, that, that situation. So on the one hand, you have the statement, you are the Christ, you are the promised one, you are the Messiah. And on the other hand, you have this teaching by Jesus. And say, hey, it's not actually going to be like you think. 
the purpose in my coming is that I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things from elders, chief priests and scribes and I will be killed but I will rise again on the third day. That's the first prediction. In the far north of Israel. Peter takes offense to this. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because this is the work of God. And then we go through a few chapters and then we come to a uh, transfiguration occurs in the interim period, on, possibly on top of Mount Hermon. And then uh, chapter 17, verse 22, says this. And they were gathering in Galilee. So they'd moved from the northern part of Israel. They're moving down the country. Gathered in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And their response, and they were greatly distressed. So as he walks from Hermon down to Galilee, probably somewhat around 30 or 40, 50 kilometres, four or five days walk, he gathers these men around him again. He just reminds them of, their pur- of his purpose, that he is about to be delivered up into the hands of men and they will kill him. And rightfully so, their response was one of distress. Put your place in the, the place of the disciples. That would be a pretty distressful thing, would it not? Five days earlier, he had said to them, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you're not. (laughs) He gets rebuked. And three of his disciples see his glory on the mount. They said, this is a good place for us to be. Let's produce booths and what have you. And They see the affirmation of God the Father saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's God's cry to the disciples, the three that were on the mountain. Listen to him. They move off the mountain. This is something they had never seen before. Jesus partially glorified. And then he reminds them, hey, my purpose is I'm going to die. And he'll be raised on the third day at the hand of men. It's an amazing contrast as they walk through the land of Israel. Then we move across to uh, Matthew chapter 20. And this is where I spend most of the time, Matthew chapter 20 and 21. We'll start reading at verse 17. You might think this is getting a bit repetitive, but Scripture is wonderful because when it repeats things, it repeats it for a purpose. So we can get it into here, that it's important. 
It is important. And uh, Jesus at this time is now, he's moved away from uh, Galilee. He's gone through, in chapter 19, he's, he's gone through the Galilean region. He's moving south. And he's in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So the Jordan River goes right down the east side of the country. So he's in the Judean region, which is beyond the Jordan. So he's on the eastern side of that. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17 of chapter 20, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, anybody want to guess what he said? Don't you know as you grow up as children, normally when something is repeated three times, you finally get it and obey? Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Come here. Oh, don't touch that. You know, the, the emphasis when re- repetition takes place is important. It's the same as we read scripture when we see repeated uh, themes. Take notice. God's Spirit wants to grab those things so we can learn. So as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, why was he going up to Jerusalem? It was Passover time. Was this the first time Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem? No. This would have been probably one of the, the second or third or perhaps even the fourth trip he had with his disciples to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Why is he going up to Jerusalem when he's going south? Jerusalem's on a hill. Okay? So he's in the, he's in the uh, Jericho, Jordan Valley and he's moving up the hill. Quite a steep little climb, by the way. Quite steep. So as he was going up to Jerusalem, he grabbed the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going up to celebrate Passover. We're going up to remember the wonderful redemption God has given us as his people. We're going up to sacrifice a lamb. to atone for our sin. So just in that one statement, we're not just talking, hey, we're just on a casual trip here. There's purpose in the trip. There's a purpose in the fact that he's going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And then he adds this, and at this time, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Unlike the previous two predictions, there's some new information here. There's some new information and there's some specific references to the Gentiles and to the nature and torment of Jesus' execution. As the time draws near, Jesus gives more detail of what is going to happen. There's going to be mocking, there's going to be flogging, and there's going to be a crucifixion. 
by the hands of men. Disciples would have known the common practice of the Roman Empire when they crucified. It was a common thing. This would have been a shock. A total shock. What would your response be to that information? You've been with this man for three years. You thought he was going to be the political military messiah. Just recently, in recent days, he's starting to explain that, no, this is more to it. This is more about atonement. It's more about saving my people. What would your response be? Because the same question is for us today, is it not? The very same question that Jesus asked Peter was, who do you say that I am? It's the same question we are confronted with every day. Who do we say Jesus is? I'll leave that there. Because it's a good question to be asking yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? And how will you serve him? Well, I am amazed at the response because we'll let's read verse 20 through 28. And I would title this an inappropriate response. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. So we don't know who her sons are. They're James and John, the disciples. And their mother. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one to your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the turn heard it, so this is the other disciples, when they heard of this request, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow, what a response. What a response. Jesus for the third time has predicted that he must die. He's added extra information saying he's actually going to be mocked, he's going to be flogged, and he is going to be crucified. And the very next thing we read is a response of two of his disciples saying, huh, 
We want to know who can sit next to you in your kingdom. Is that an appropriate response? And not only did they not only ask them themselves, they got their mother to do it. I question their leadership. It's really interesting though, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't actually address uh, their mother. He turns and addresses them. And he asks them the question, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now this cup was a metaphor, picture language for suffering, especially from the Old Testament. Um, And it was related to suffering that is caused by God's wrath. If you start reading through some of the Old Testament scriptures, you will see that uh, in relation to the cup of wrath, you'll read that a few times. So in effect, what Jesus was asking them was, hey, can you appease God's wrath in a sin-bearing way? You too, James and John, do you really understand what I've just said? I've told you that I'm going to be crucified, mocked, and I'm going to die. Previous to that, I told you I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Do you have any comprehension of what that means? He starts to inform them that this means that I'm going to satisfy God's wrath. Because he starts talking about this cup. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you appease? Can you satisfy God's wrath against sin? They don't get it because they foolishly say, yes, we can. And then Jesus informs them, yes, you will. You might actually have some of the persecution related to suffering. Because I have just recently said, I will be persecuted. I will be flogged. You may experience that. But you can't appease for God's wrath. And then the ten, the other ten came up and... and, uh, It's interesting because their response wasn't to actually tell those two, hey, you're way out of line, you've got it wrong. Their response here is uh, they were indignant. Other versions, translations would say they were jealous. They were ashamed they hadn't asked first. They were manipulating for pecking order as well. And then Jesus said, I'm going to teach you guys a little bit of an object lesson. And I'm going to inform you, I'm going to show you actually what the intent of me going to Jerusalem is. And he talks about being a servant. And he uses this word in verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We have that on our wall behind us. We should actually put... Matthew 20, 28, next to the reference, because it's the same. It is the same. And he uses this word ransom. It is only used twice in the New Testament in this particular verse in Mark 10, 45. Throughout the Old Testament, it's used, or its Hebrew equivalent is used some 20 plus times. And it has the... The thought of ransom is paying a price to redeem someone from a slave market. 
That's the intent of the word. Jesus is saying, I'm going to pay for your sin. So I'm giving my life as the sin bearer. This was the purpose of Christ's mission. The purpose of his mission was to take your sin and my sin and appease for that. More than appease, actually. Remove. Appease is the wrong word. Bear it. Take it upon ourselves. Take it upon himself. And in exchange, give us his righteousness. One of my favorite authors titles this The Great Exchange. His name is Jerry Bridges. An excellent book. I don't recommend books often, but if you want to understand a little bit about this, I'd encourage you to read this book. It's called The Great Exchange by Jerry Bridges. And he's... This portion of scripture shows us that Christ's intent was not to be a political messianic ruler, but to serve. In line with predictions of Isaiah 53 and other Old Testament terms that he would take on the sin of the world. to satisfy God's wrath. So we have a, an appropriate response, two of them here. I've just heard this wonderful purpose of Jesus. James and John are concerned about their position in the kingdom. The other disciples are jealous because James and John might get actually a better position. Jesus turns it and says, no, you need to understand the real purpose of what's going on here. I'm here to be a ransom for many. Not just for you, for many. I'm going to pay the price. Do you understand that in your own life? Do you understand that Christ has come? He died. He was buried and he rose again to pay the price for your sin. He is your ransom. He's paid, in effect, he's pulled the coinage out of his pockets to pay the ransom for your sin. And not only that, he clothes you with his righteousness, his goodness. That may be a new concept to you. It's what the Bible teaches. I pray that the Spirit of God will convict your heart to have a fresh understanding of that, that Christ came to pay for your sin. Let's move on. Verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them. Then telling them to be silent, they, but they cried out all the more, Lord, 
have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want to do with me? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, or Jesus in compassion touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the appropriate response. Disciples gave an inappropriate response. The two blind men gave an appropriate response. They cried out, they they knew their need for a saviour. Even the titles, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They said it once, the crowd tried to quieten them down. No, 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 don't, don't let... Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Stop him from crying out. Stop him from going. Don't stop him from going. They cried out more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus showed great compassion and saved them. Because they had a contrite heart, they knew their need for a saviour, and Jesus acted. That's the appropriate response when we come to the facts of Jesus. The appropriate response is that, Lord, we are sinners. We need a saviour. Let's move on. Chapter 21. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, there Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them the cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. On Galilee, in Galilee, of Galilee. The triumphal entry, we call this, I would say it's misnamed. I don't think it is a triumphant entry. I think it is a, it's an entry that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, but the people don't really know why he's coming. He draws near, he's on the Mount of Olives, he walks down the Mount of Olives on his, and he, or he instructs his disciples, go grab a donkey and her colt. So there's two animals here, not one. If you read the text, you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. So both the animals are coming along to fulfill the prophecy that has come earlier in Zechariah 9.9. 9. Disciples do that, and then the people 
start spreading their cloaks on the road and cut branches. And they start crying out, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, if they'd known their Old Testament a little bit better, they would realize that when someone's riding on a donkey, it's coming in peace and humility. If you're riding on a horse, you're coming in in a military sense. The prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9 clearly states that Christ would come riding on a donkey. So the Messiah who is coming in here, he's coming with peace and humility. And yet the people are turning this whole picture into a celebration and honour, reminiscent of a victory party, reminiscent of a conquering king coming into Jerusalem. They did not understand. The crowd did not understand. This crowd would have probably come with them from Galilee, from Jericho. They were all heading down to Jerusalem for Passover. They did not understand that he was going to be the Lamb of God. So they were thinking he's coming in to be a, a military conqueror. How do we know that? Because in contrast, four days later, they cry and crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The crowd cries, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I love the last two verses here because I think these are really pertinent. And when he entered Jerusalem, so he came down the Mount of Olives, and you come down the Mount of Olives, you come into the East Gate. It's now shut, actually, the... Uh, Muslims have shut that gate off. But prophetically, Messiah would come through the East Gate. Prophetically, Messiah will come through the East Gate again, which is exciting. But he comes down the Mount of Olives. To his left is the Garden of Gethsemane. In four or five days' time, we will read of the anguish in that garden. goes through the Kidron Valley. It's a ravine between the walled city, Jerusalem, and, and the Mount of Olives. During Passover time, that valley would run with blood because on average, 3,000 lambs would be slaughtered an hour in the temple court. And he rides into Jerusalem through the East Gate as the Messiah. And the question is, I love this, the whole city was stirred up. Now, I think that understates it. Verse 10. Because this word would be a common word for what happens when you have an earthquake. It probably would be, in today's language, the common word that would have happened as Grant Elliott smacked that six out of Eden Park. The whole crowd just stirred and rumbled and this is, this is not something that is uh, minor. So the crowd was wild with excitement and thrown into commotion, maybe a better way of saying it. But they ask a question, who is this? Even though they're so um, stirred up with emotion, etc., they still don't know who it is. Who is this? 
And the crowd said, oh, he's just some prophet from Nazareth. Matthew clearly points out that he's greater than the prophet, he's greater than the priest, he's greater than the king. He is the atoning sacrifice for sin. That's who he is. So we started today's lesson with a question. The question was, before Peter, who do people say that I am? We end today with the question, who is this? And is your response like the crowd? Oh, I don't know, he might be some prophet, he might be some good person, he might be some good moral teacher. Don't really know. He's from a town up in Nazareth way by Galilee. I don't know. Or would your response be like James and John? Yeah, I sort of know who he is, but I'm more concerned about my own well-being, my own position in the kingdom. Or would your response be like the two blind men? Lord, have mercy on me. Because that's where we come to. That's where our responses are. I would hope your response is to look at Jesus as the saviour of the world, the atoner of sin. And like the blind men, you turn and say, Lord, have mercy on me. If you don't know the Lord, I would implore you this, what they call Holy Week, from now until Easter. Wrestle within your heart. Who is Jesus? If you do know Jesus, don't be like James or John. Don't be concerned about your position in the community. I came across this wonderful quote. I'm going to share it with you. We would like to, therefore, we conclude that sinners rebelling against God's sovereign authority are despising of his word and his person and even defiance of God himself. There's no wonder that Paul wrote later on, because of our sin, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. We would like to think that as believers, such descriptions of sin no longer applies to us. We look at the gross and obvious sins of society around us, and we tend to define sin in terms of those actions. We fail to see that our anxiety, our discontent, our ingratitude toward God, our pride and selfishness, our critical and judgmental attitudes towards others, our gossip, our unkind words to or about others, our preoccupation with the things of this life and a whole host of other subtle sins are an expression of rebellion against God and despising of his word and person. That sums up James and John's attitude. 
Let's not be like that. Let's be like the blind men who need a saviour, who cry out, have mercy on us. We need to do that daily, folks. We need to do that daily. As we realise the reliance we have on Christ, he will give us life to the full. I'd like the music team to come up, thanks.